Hey everybody and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Charlie Alvarenga. It is a pleasure to have you back in studio with me. Not really in studio, in my office, in my house, in New Mexico. Because today we're going over an incredibly important topic. Today it's going to add on to the series that we've been doing for the past month, the winter series. We're going to go over cold topics but it's not going to be one of those regular, you know, you, you go to your refresher that you have to go to and they click through slides and they say, oh, this is hypothermia, this is what you do to treat it, and uh, that's about it. And they spend about 30 seconds on hypothermia because they don't think it's important. Well, that is just plain horse shit, okay? That, that's not the way EM Transport does it, that's not the way Squad 81 does it, and that's not the way professionals handle information, they dissect it. They go into the depths of the information, and that's what we're going to do today. We are actually going to go over the physics, the chemistry, the biology, and then a little bit of the medicine. Not a little bit. It's a lot of medicine at the end of how to treat cold injuries. And it's just going to end today. Today we're going to go over all the physics and all the fun stuff of cold injuries, but we're going to hit on and nail one specific topic. That specific topic is going to be frostbite. Yes, the the bite of Mr. Frost, of Jack Frost, I believe his name is. Frosty the Snowman comes in, bites your hand. That's essentially what's going to happen. And we're going to go over all of that today. We're going to dive in deep. Now I want you to stick with me through all of the physics and chemistry and all that because at the end you're going to get a nugget of goodness on some research that I'm actually going to be doing a more of an experiment on how to better treat frostbite in the field and then we're going to give you an opportunity to check it out and do it at your house and and give you all the equipment to try and understand it but before we get to that before we jump into the main podcast the main meat of this entire thing we have to go over some stuff Namely, our sponsor. And today, we're going to have two sponsors, because I can't lie to you. Today, during the podcast, the, the, the sponsor is Kahlua Special 70 Proof, because I love it in my coffee. It's amazing. And it, I, I don't have it at 8 in the morning right when I wake up, but right now, it's about midday. It's a cold day outside. I'm, I'm smoking my tobacco pipe, and I got Stag Santa Fe Number no. 5 in there, just puffing away, and a, and a nice, lukewarm cup of Kahlua and coffee just goes great with my day. And today is my day off. I'll, I'll, I have to throw that in there. But when I was develop the, developing this entire podcast, you know, doing the research, writing everything down, making sure everything's sp spick and span, putting it in order, I was drinking Sailor Jerry. More specifically, Sailor Jerry and Coke, or a, a rum and Coke, and this will come into play later when we go into the physics, because we're going to have a callback to this in to, to our sponsor, because they're going to help out with the physics, and because nothing feels better inside you than a sailor and some Coke. <laughs> Alright, let's get to the podcast. Yes, hello everybody, welcome back. Today, we're going to start with some physics, because that's that's so much fun. I love physics. 
it embodies everything. It embodies chemistry, biology, um, uh, engineering, it embodies medicine, it, it just embodies the entirety of our universe and our world, and that does not exclude energy. And that's what heat is. Heat is energy. But we're going to go over some key terms. Convection, conduction, and radiation. The different types of heat transfer or transfer of energy. That's the way I want you to think about it, the transfer of energy. Now let's start off with convection. Now convection is the transfer of energy between an object and its environment. So let's say you are currently in your nice heated ambulance or your nice heated fire truck and then you're like, oh well I'm going to step outside, I'm going to go to the call. You step outside of your ambulance, you, this heated body at 97 degrees, step into this freezing atmosphere. What are you doing? You, you are being convected. You are radiating heat off of your body into the environment. That, that is essentially the, the kind of mental model you can play with convection. Now, uh, conduction is, is relatively a little bit easier. Conduction is the transfer of energy between objects that are in contact with each other. So the one way you can think about that is if I go to my fridge right now and I pull out that big bottle of Sailor Jerry's rum and I set it on my table... These have two different temperatures, two different energy sources. And now what's going to happen? The transfer of energy is going to go between these two objects. Even it, when you touch it, you hold it with your hand, there's a transfer of energy. Whenever you feel a pediatric baby's temperature, a pediatric patient's temperature, you are feeling a form of conduction, their heat energy heating up your hand or your hand having less uh, energy being transferred to it. So it, it really is just two objects touching each other and energy being exchanged in between them. Now radiation is even easier. Radiation is the transfer of energy from the movement of charged particles within atoms that is converted to electromagnetic radiation. Now, we all can think of household items that do that themselves. What can you think that uh, transfers energy and excites particles and, and moves them down and con converts it into electromagnetic radiation? How about a, a, a microwave? How about a hot plate just above the hot plate where you could see the, the, the particle waves just moving the air and moving the, uh, the, the particles in an accelerated fashion and, and creating radiating heat? That, that's essentially what it is. It's radiating heat. It's, it's, it's so easy a concept to wrap your hand around, and that's why I know all of you guys will understand it. There are ways to make your own mental image and mental models of all these. And I, I encourage you all to do it yourself because it'll allow you to have them stick in your brain that much easier. But there's something that you always need to understand, and that is that there is always heat slash energy transfer for everything. Chemical reactions, your movement, your day-to-day -day movement, you thinking right now, you going outside, uh, your, your coffee mug filled with Kahlua getting colder by the second. There is heat transfer and energy transfer and anything and everything all the time. So an easy quick wrap up on convention, conduction, and radiation.
Now, just a quick dose of chemistry, a little, a little bit of uh, term definitions as well. We are going to look at the enthalpy and entropy of Coca-Cola, or rather some of the processes in Coca-Cola. Well, and that's what I want to use because if, if any of you uh, have mixed drinks, rum and Cokes, maybe they're in front of you right now, maybe you're at home listening to this podcast, sipping on a nice rum and Coke, you can understand this mental model. But before we get to that mental model, we have to def- define enthalpy and entropy. Yeah, I know they're big words, but you EMS personnel are incredibly smart. And, I, and I, 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 one pet peeve of mine is you guys might be saying to yourself, why do I need to know this? And you might have heard somebody state to you, well, why do you need to know that? And that is such a, a demoralizing to my profession statement. That, that question is just, it, it blows my mind. Why do you need to know anything? Well, because I don't want to live in the world where ignorance is bliss. I want to live in the world where we are knowledgeable and we continue to grow and learn from anything. So aside from that little soapbox that I just got on right there, let's get into enthalpy and entropy. Now, a lot of you already know what entropy is, but we got to pay attention to the pronunciation, entropy. Because entropy is the measure of molecular randomness or disorder. And you can put those disorders in quotes because... because disorder is, is um, again, a mental model. It allows you to wrap your head around what's going on. And we'll get into that later on what's going on. So entropy is also defined as delta S if you guys want to use it on equations. But we are going to have to use equations today. Entropy. Entropy is randomness and disorder. Now let's talk about enthalpy. Enthalpy. Remember that TH, enthalpy. Because it's the change in temperature in and out of a system or reaction. So when we say system, you can define anything as a system. Me sitting in my house, uh, they, the house is the system and I, and I am in it. So I am transferring my heat energy to the house. Or if my house is uh, warm, it's transferring its heat energy into me. It could be the house itself. It could be the world. It could be the universe. It could be anything. Whatever you define as a system, you have to make sure that it's either an open or a closed system. Now, we're not going to have to get into that today, but all I want you to remember is that enthalpy is the change in temperature in and out of a system. Also uh, equated by delta H. That's how you're going to see it in some uh, equations in some textbooks that you might see. Enthalpy, delta H. So now that we've covered those terms, entropy and enthalpy, Let's make some mental models to sink it all in so you guys will understand what's happening. So now I want you to imagine two Coke cans. You have two closed Coke cans that could be whatever you want them to be as long as they have carbonation inside. And the carbonation inside is going to be key because what happens or why is that carbonation in there in the first place? Well, it's in there because inside that carbonation, inside that that Coke the carbonation is under pressure. That entire can is under pressure, whether it be a bottle or a can. It, it's always under pressure. And what that's doing is pushing that the, those bubbles, those, those, those carbonated molecules lower into the liquid. It, it's pushing them and keeping them in, isolated inside the liquid, inside the can. 
So now you have these two cans. You have a warm one and a cold one. You have a warm can and a cold can. Now I just want you to just think about this just for a second and, and I'll give you a pause. I'll, I'll put a little timer on here or something to where you could come up with your own answer. Which one is going to have more fizz or bubbles or explode more when you open it up? Which one? The cold can or the hot can and why? Alright, well, I'm sure you guys have had your answers in your head for a long time by now because this is a pretty elemental idea. And it's probably happened to all of us before. I know it's happened to me on numerous occasions when I'm not thinking and I just rapidly open my soda to pour with my alcohol. Now, CO2, like I said before, is contained as a gas inside the liquid. The, it's due to a pressurized system, but when we open that can, the pressure is equalized and the gas escapes in the form of bubbles and carbonation and it explodes out at a rapid pace and we like to drink that. It tastes good. But now which one will have more fizz? Well, let's look at the cold can. What do you think about the cold can? Let, let's take some aspects that we've already learned in chemistry that we just went over about the cold can. Well, is the cold can going to have more disorder or less disorder? Is it going to have more entropy or less entropy? I think it's going to have less entropy and less disorder. Because as we lower the temperature, those water molecules and those uh, gas molecules, they want to slow down. They're, if, you, if you could ball your hands up into fists and run them around your hands really quickly, like you're, like you're just juggling stuff and just moving them all around every place, when we slow those down, that's essentially what's happening with entropy and cooling so those gas bubbles don't want to bounce against that can anymore they just want to kind of slow down and slow the amount of rate that they are firing at or are moving about at so my instinct is to say that the cold can is going to have less fizz because it has slower molecules less entropy and the cooling of this can is non-spontaneous so we have to actually extract heat from this can the heat is being removed from the can whenever you put it into a refrigerator and that's an important point we don't put cold into anything we extract heat so whenever you hear somebody saying hey you're letting the cold in that's actually false you are actually letting the heat out. Remember, it's all about heat, which, which we go into in our next one, the hot can. Now, if we just inverted what we just said about the cold can, we can attain that more heat added to this can will excite the molecules. It'll excite those gas particles and they'll start moving around and becoming all bustly and start bouncing against the can and wanting to get out as much as possible. And that's essentially what happens. It has more entropy. There's a giant explosion of your can as, as soon as you open it. And that that's why, because you're exciting these carbonated molecules, these carbonated gas molecules inside that liquid. And the liquid itself is becoming excited. Whenever you add entropy or enthalpy to anything, it excites what it is. So the more enthalpy, the more heat that is being added to a reaction, 
or or uh, being take or at the end of a reaction at the product side the more the uh, molecules around it will be spinning around and wanting to hit places and go things that's why here's another mental model if you take a balloon uh, filled with just oxygen or, or gas and you have it on a hot day it will actually expand and when if you go and put it in the freezer or the fridge it'll shrink because those gas molecules aren't wanting to move around as much they're becoming docile and just not hitting the containers of the vessel that they are contained in now that puts into your head the basic idea of what enthalpy and entropy is but now we're going to do something a little bit different. I still want you to take those two cocans, and we just stated that the one that is more apt to explosion or exploding is the hotter one. Because the gas molecules are just waiting to burst out of that at any moment as soon as you open the can. But now let's put that same can, before we open it, that hot can, into a cold environment. Let's put that into a freezer and see what happens. Now, if we leave it in there, say, overnight for a long period of time, what will happen and why? Well, let's break it down. Let's think what's happening. We have this hot can. We put it into a cold environment. We shut the door. What, what is happening to that heat that's inside the can? Well, the heat is getting dissipated into the environment. The heat is getting sucked out of the can. The heat is actually heating up the air around it. It's heating the, 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 the cold freezer. It's, it's transferring its heat from the can itself to the environment that it's in. So it has these molecules just full of entropy that are just moving all about, moving all about, and it's relocating its heat. That entropy is going to start to slow down. Those molecules in the soda are going to start to move a little slower, go from a higher rate to a slower rate. And the liquid is also going to start to slow down as, you know, the environment starts to slightly heat up. But then we have that, uh, you know, that Freon that takes out the, 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 the heat from the environment and sucks in all this, um, this negative enthalpy. The molecules slow down. And then what does it do? After a while, it fucking explodes. It makes a mess out of your freezer, and it destroys the Coke can, and it makes a big mess, and now you're left with just rum that you have to take via shots and water because, you know, all of the stores near you are closed, and you still want to drink. But now why? Why did it explode? Why, why did it? I thought only heat made it explode. Well, here's what happens. The liquid inside that can, if you make your, your hands into molecules again and rub them around and move them about and start to slow them down into this, you know, liquid, it's, it's, it's moving a little bit slower now. And, but these molecules are still rushing past each other. They haven't formed any solidified structure. They, they aren't like a, a rock that has fixed points on, or a crystallization or, or even a gas. Gas is just too erratic, but they are in the middle. It's the medium. It's liquid. But as we start to cool down, that entropy also starts to lower, just like I mentioned before. And it creates lattice structures. It creates 
crystallization. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, the, the, the molecules that were once running around themselves and just moving all about the place and still in a, a con, formed to a container are now starting to stack on top of each other, starting to move on to, top of one another and become a fixed position. Now, the can only has so much of a certain volume, but when we start to stack these once movable, pliable uh, molecules on top of one another, it creates a larger volume. So the pressurized container now can't hold all of this. And, and what does it do? It, it presses against the sides of those containers, and then it explodes. It explodes everywhere, and, and that's what happens. It, it is, it's creating an environment where the heat is taken away, the entropy is lowering, and you're creating structure. You're creating these crystalline structures that are creating even more pressure with inside the can that is already pressurized, and it explodes. Now, I know all of you are already getting these mental models inside your mind of how this pertains to medicine, and I love it. I'm glad that you guys are putting these A and B together, and you're understanding, oh my gosh, well, I'm made up of a lot of water. Doesn't that happen to water as well? It, it does. So when we think about water, water boils at a certain temperature, right? Well, it also freezes at a certain temperature. It freezes at zero degrees Celsius. And once it freezes... It creates structurization. It creates these lattice structures, right? Well, that, that's essentially what's happening. That's why you make ice cubes. That's how you make ice cubes. That's, that's how you boil water. All these things, freezing point, boiling point, mental point, melting point, excuse me, all these things come into play inside your body. And that's it. That, that's all that, that's all the chemistry and physics that I had for you. Everything that you may have forgotten or you put away in your in your thought banks have now been risen to the surface and now you understand what's happening. Because now we're going to get into the fun stuff, or should I say the funner stuff, because all that stuff is still pretty fun. But now we're going to go into the pathology of a cold environment inside and outside your cell, inside extracellular and, and, and intracellular processes of cellular swelling when you have a cold environment, because it's absolutely insane. I have personally seen a second-degree frostbite where my friend's hand, and you might have heard him on the mountain episode, his hand doubled in size compared to his right. And the reason it did that is because he was actually holding on to a metal flashlight. Um, a metal flashlight in, in this blizzard storm, that metal flashlight is sucking all of the heat out of his hand. It's this amazing conductor that, that just takes this takes it takes and takes and takes of heat, and, and that's what happened. He sustained a cold injury, but let's talk about what happened. Now, what happens on a cellular level is hypothermia inhibits the sodium-potassium ATPase, and upsets the normal balance between sodium influx and potassium efflux in favor of the sodium. Thus, more sodium on the, on the inside, more sodium is moving inside, and that creates cellular swelling. Now, everybody remembers the sodium-potassium pump. It, it's something that we have to deal with on a daily basis. It's something that we manipulate with drugs. 
And it's an incredible, incredible process inside your body. And when hypothermia inhibits an aspect of it and pushes sodium inside, that's what's creating the cellular swelling because what what do we what what does water want to do well it wants to move inside the cell or inside whatever aspect of the of the body has the most solutes and that again is if there isn't a barrier uh, or a channel occluding that but this hypothermic state creates cell permeability it's destruction of the cell now we can think of a lot of things that uh, hypothermia has done good for us but we're not going to get into that because this isn't a hypothermic quote-unquote therapeutic hypothermia uh, podcast or information on that but we can see the benefits of it in the future like with our cardiac resus patients that have been receiving this for a while now and the and the research that has been done for it recently it's an incredible incredible stuff but what we are dealing with now is the general idea of what happens to your body when you are exposed to a cold environment and your enthalpy that heat transfer is being removed from your body and your entropy is slowly slowly dwindling now let's 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 put it all together what with that in mind we are we have swelling in there what else can happen well why what happened with the coke can can't happen to my normal cells or my extracellular fluid or the fluid running through my veins right now that's not being uh, properly heated because when we are heated when we are exposed to a cold environment what do we what do we do initially we shunt our extremities give up their their ability to heat that well and we try to heat our inner core so now we have less blood flow to our hand our hand isn't being able to generate heat itself unless we're sort of shivering or shaking which is what we're essentially trying to do create movement create friction with inside the muscle cells and use ATP, use energy to try and create some form of heat. What's happening? Well, we're forming crystalline structures. We are forming crystallization. We are forming injury. We are forming destruction. That's what's happening. That's what happened to my friend's hand that took hours to remedy. So now let's take Freddy's hand. He, he's holding this flashlight the heat energy is leaving his hand going into the flashlight going into the environment because he doesn't he didn't have proper gloves and now what's happening well the molecules in his hand are starting to slow down his nak atpase is malfunctioning and more sodium is being pumped into it and he's starting to have cellular swelling he's starting to have neuronal slowing and lattice structures and crystallization is starting to form. Cells are bursting. The, the area around cells are freezing, causing more damage. Your neurons aren't being fed the oxygen it needs to do the low perfusion. That's what causes all this destruction. That's what's happening inside that cell. I want you to look at your hands and look at your digits and understand that patients can lose these. If we don't wrap our head around how to better treat them in the field and how to understand that we can also cause secondary injuries by the way we treat them and the way we reheat and the way we mistreat them, that's why this is all so important. 
And yes, there are other symptoms that happen. There is confusion. There is also an increase in metabolic rate. There is an increase in oxygen demand. There, there are all these symptoms that happen, and they all sort of stem from the same area of understanding. This heat transfer, this energy transfer, and your cells in your body attempting to make up for that. Your muscle cells attempting to contract and release to generate heat. Your mitochondria working in overdrive to try and produce energy to go to these muscle cells. But now, due to the lack of perfusion, they're, they're just sort of shooting themselves in the foot and putting you further and further down the hole. Now we're going to step away from the pathology to understand who is this affecting. And the simple answer is anyone who is exposed to the environment. Yeah, I mean, we just did a whole podcast on it about campers, hikers, climbers, soldiers, and the people that we might often see the most, the homeless. Now, this isn't a, you know, fly-by-night sort of thing. You just, oh, you know, the homeless, they're going to be cold. Well, duh, get them a blanket. No, there have been reports of homeless receiving second-degree and fourth-degree frostbite from being left out in the fucking cold. We need to take this seriously because people can lose digits. And just because they're homeless and they're, they, they don't have any insurance doesn't mean we don't treat them the best because EMS is the best at that. We don't care if you're a millionaire or you're, you're the poorest of the poor. You get the same exact treatment. Now, there may be personnel or patients that might not be exposed to the environment and still receive cold injuries. They might be exposed to a chemical reaction. They might uh, be, you know, touch the Freon in the refrigerator while trying to change it out or do something to it. Or they might just touch some dry ice. And that in itself happens over a relatively quick amount of time. And that actually differentiates the pathology that happens inside of your body and we'll get to that later when we get to first second and third degree frostbite when we cover all the de definitions of that we'll get to how that affects it or or it could be some dumbass who provides care to someone and puts a you know on an, an ice pack on a child without covering it it could be it could be as simple as that on an, on an hour ride to a hospital they they arrive at the hospital and the kid's hand is twice its size or their forearm is twice its size so do not forget to wrap your ice packs and wrap your hot packs that's incredibly important or it could be some other dumbass who, you know, got a sprained ankle and decided to use a fire extinguisher to, to reduce swelling. That will cause an injury. That will cause frostbite. Don't do that. But that has been reported, which is just insane. It's crazy. I can't believe that actually happened. But that is another way to get frostbite and a cold injury. And I'm sure all of you out there can come up with a plethora more aside from those people who live in Florida. I'm just kidding. They, they have cold injuries all the time, but it's not due to their environment. Now, before we go on, let's reiterate what we've stated before. We've talked about the different types of uh, heat transfer or enthalpy transfer. We've also talked about enthalpy in the transfer of conduction, convection, radiation. We've also conducted or talked about uh, entropy. And the, the the mental models that we've came up with, that I've came up with and the mental models I want you guys to come up with and sort of think about. We've covered a little bit of the a pathology on a cellular level on, on what happens. 
But now we're going to go into the awesome stuff that you guys are going to take back into your practice. You guys are going to rock out on. You guys are going to you're going to go out there. You're going to notice it in the field. You're going to be able to quantify it. You're going to be able to give it a name and a number. And you're going to take this patient with the utmost amazing care to the hospital, give report, and give that patient their extremity back. That's what you guys are going to do. So, frostbite. So just like burns, there are degrees. First degree, second degree, third degree, and fourth degree. And it goes in the same order that the burns do. The higher the degree, the higher the injury. Now, before we get into the specific degrees, one, two, and three, and four, we have to cover frost nip. And yeah, nobody's going to call you for frost nip, but it's under it's good for you to understand what that is. It's going to be easily treated. There's no cell damage. There might be a little colored reddening, but other than that, it's just going to be cold. That's frost nip. That's Jack Frost nipping at your nose. That's what that song is about. They don't sing about frostbite where you lose a fucking limb. They sing about your nose getting red and your ears getting red, and then it being quickly remedies as soon as you step inside or come out of the environment. But now on to frostbite the first degree. First degree frostbite. It is going to be superficial. It is going to be a central area of pallor, anesthesia. There won't be any paresthesia, but there will be anesthesia of the skin surrounded by edema. So they, they, you will have a little bit of edema formation. And I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen first degree frostbite. I'll try and find the variant degrees of frostbite and put them up on the podcast so you guys can better see and understand what you guys are looking at. Now on to second degree. Secondary frostbite, just like secondary burns, you're going to have large blisters with clear fluid and edema or arrhythmia, and it will form a uh, eschar around it, but you won't have any tissue loss. But that's important. Those are going to be easy ways to understand and differentiate. First degree and second degree are a lot like first degree and second degree burns. Going in that matter of pattern, you guys will be able to spot this out in the field, no problem. Now, third degree frostbite. Third degree is going to be a deeper injury, smaller blisters. They might be hemorrhagic in nature. And the proximal skin forms black eschar in one to several weeks later. What does that mean? That means there's a delay in the injury you might see. Now, we mentioned in the Mountain Podcast that Freddie didn't have a delay. He found the spot early. It happened right then. But you might be responding to somebody who had a cold injury a week ago, and now you're noticing he's noticing the black, he or she is noticing the black tissue that's starting to form. Now, fourth degree just like in the highest form of burn injuries with heat being transferred into your body the muscle bone and it's a it's affecting muscle and bone and there's tissue necrosis and there's mummification of the injury in four to ten days and if you guys know don't know what mummification is of an injury it's it's a nightmare to see the only way i could see it is a complete circumferential burn that, that just looks like a giant blister just wrapping this hand in death and that's what it looks like and it could also be black in nature now now when i saw this it, it was absolutely mortifying so i'm gonna preempt you guys if you guys want to go and see mummification of frostbite injury be warned it's nsfw as they would say on reddit so now we have done it. We have just uh, covered all of the aspects of frostbite from uh, frost nip to first degree, second degree, third degree, and fourth degree. And I want you to implant those into your mind. 
because when you transfer your patient, when you're calling on the radio, I want you to use those. This patient has a, a second-degree frostbite, uh, and use the same burn calculations, not, not the ones for administering fluid, but the ones for the rule of nines. Use those exact ones that you use on burns. Use them for your patient. He has a first-degree bite that's at 19% of his entire body, isolated to his hand and forearm or, or his abdomen or whatever. But now on to one of the more important aspects of this entire podcast, the treatment, because that's what we are in the business of doing, treating patients. So in the pre-hospital profession, there is a lot we can do. And I got these recommendations from the National Wilderness EMS protocols and guidelines. And I, and I think I could find the link and put it up to you, for you guys to check out. It's an amazing website. Uh, our protocols, or at least the ones that I used to have uh, when I used to be a field medic, don't have specifics for how to retreat frostbite. And even at the national level, I tried to look for it and they just said hypothermia and, and it didn't really give exact treatment guidelines. But there there are treatment guidelines that we should all have a mental model about. And remember, I am not a doctor. I am a medic. I'm a flight medic, a critical care medic, but I, I am not a doctor. I do not run your protocols. I don't know what your protocols are. These are just uh, advice that was given onto me that I had to research and look up and then I'm giving on to you. And so what I want you to do is listen to all these treatment ideas and uh, try to implement them into your own protocols. Jot them down, take a list, and maybe I'll even put them up so it's an easy fix for you guys to just look at and then try and develop a protocol for your system because that is what I am going to do now. Now for the pre-hospital profession, what we are going to do initially is, is what they instinctually wanted to do in the first place and that's get to a warm environment and then you're going to remove their wet clothing. And then we're going to hit a list of don'ts. So we've gotten them out of the environment, we remove wet clothing and there's something that we don't do. We don't make them walk on frostbitten feet. Now, we also don't rewarm if there's a chance of refreezing. And that's going to be for our wilderness uh, EMS people out there that are listening to this or people who are going camping or people who, who just have an, an insight on wanting to treat people. If there is a chance that it might refreeze, we do not rewarm. We do not rub injuries. And we do not heat with a fire or a stove. Now, why don't we heat with a fire or a stove or with a hot pack directly on their body? Well, because not only might they have some paresthesia, not be able to move their limbs so great, but they will have anesthesia. So they will not be able to feel their hand getting burned and the area around their hand getting burned. So not only do they have a cold injury now, now you might have heated them up a little bit, but now you ha they have a burn injury. So that's incredibly important. Do not heat with a fire, a stove, or a hot pack completely unprotected onto skin. So what do we rewarm with? What do we heat with? Well, there weren't that many specific recommendations on my protocols or on my website, one thing that they don't say, or that they do say rather, is that you don't heat with a hot pack directly on skin. You wrap it up in whatever, you, either a towel, some curlic, some gauze, but skin to uh, hot pack contact is, is never a good thing, whether it be an ice pack or a cold pack. You also want to reheat with the ambulance environment itself, crank up that AC like you have a trauma patient in the back and you're just 
bounding heat molecules on top of yourself. You're heating up those molecules. They're bouncing all over the place. They're transferring heat not only uh, into you, but also into your patient. And that's the important part. So crank that heater all the way up in the back of your ambulance. Uh, one thing that they can do to reheat themselves, if they would like, is to put their own hands, if, if it is their, their hands that are frostbitten, which it most likely is, because remember, it goes uh, to the extremis first, like the nose, the uh, the, the ears, the, the feet, the hands, and put them in the, your axillaries. So put them under their armpits like your superstar, and just don't sniff them, just keep them under there and have them heat up slowly with, using their own body temperature but most of the time it's going to be cold because they have a frostbite injury and they're hypothermic and they're not really perfusing that with their skin that well so that, that, that that's one way to do it but not the best way now the way that they do it in hospital is a way that i think we should do it out in the field instead of wrapping it in a hot pack or using a, a heater which is relatively hard to try and control and get it to a certain degree of measurement we are going to use an idea, an idea that, that we took from the hospital, and that's using warm liquids. Yeah, warm liquids in your IV is a good thing. So if you have never, if you don't have a, a an IV heater in your ambulance, what you could do is throughout the day, just set two on your front dash of your, and let the sun heat them through radiant energy, let the engine heat it through uh, conduction and convection, just just let it all just heat, heat let your ambulance heat up your IVs, your uh, normal saline on the dash. If you don't have that, or if you, you know, haven't thought of it, and you're just in the back with a cold IV pack, and you're trying to heat up this patient, get your IV you can wrap your uh, hot pack against the entire IV and also against the tubing. This is one way that I've learned how to heat the heat my patients, my trauma patients, and now my hypothermic patients that, that need uh, slow and active rewarming. So that's one way I was taught. Uh, if, if that's in your protocols, please uh, feel free to do it. That's just one way that I've learned how to do it. Again, I haven't quantified the measurement of how much heat is actually transferred to the bag, through the IV bag, uh, into the normal saline itself. But it, again, it does warm the liquid. But now what about extremities? What if you have an isolated injury like frostbite and you're trying to rewarm that, say it's their hand, do you want to put a hot pack in their hand with uh, just wrapped in gauze? Well, that's one way to do it. But there's also another way. And the way that they do it in hospital is they put it in a whirlpool, a hot whirlpool where they can just micro set it to, oh, uh, put it to 30 degree, 37 cell, and or, you know, 97 F. And they can just do it to a, a certain decimal, I think two decimals in, and they can have it at that specific temperature and constantly move the molecules of the water around just a little whirlpool to actively heat up the extremity now i was thinking why can't we do that in the pre-hospital profession why don't i have a basin with hot water why 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 has no, nobody done this why is this not a thing well I think it's because a lot of us don't have the supply to have a whirlpool in the back of our ambulance. But like most EMS and most uh, pre-hospital professionals, we adapt and overcome. So I have created a method and an experiment that I'm actually going to talk about after we talk about in-hospital treatment. So stick around for that. That's going to be the experiment at the end in a specific way we can heat pre-hospital patients with a whirlpool, with the equipment that we have in the back of an ambulance. 
or in a helicopter, or in a jet. One thing we do not want to forget ever, and that I am seeing more and more often, is that we need to give narcotics. I don't care if they say that, oh, you know, the middle of my hand doesn't hurt that much, but my forearm kind of hurts because it still is painful. Having, a, you know, a dead tissue that, that doesn't have, you know, uh, perfusion going to it doesn't mean that they aren't receiving pain signals stating that it hurts. So be sure and narcotic your patients. Give them narcs. Do not be go uh, half-assed on this. We do not half-measure. Just like treated just as if it were burns. I don't care if they are a one-year-old or a 72-year-old or whatever age. If they're the doctor from Doctor Who and they're thousands of years old. You give them narcotics. Narc your patients. All right. In hospital. In hospital, what do they do? Well, they try and get their temperature to 37 degrees Celsius, 37 to 39 degrees Celsius. And like I said, they rewarm with an H2O whirlpool. And they do not use dry heat. And the reason they don't use that is because it's kind of hard to get that down to something that they can control. You know, the, the molecules might move in a certain place when you're using, let's say, a blow dryer. And a lot of that energy is being dissipated just in the environment itself. But if you're able to control it in the water, it, it, it's you're going to have a better and easier time managing the slow and then active rewarming of an isolated injury. Now, something they, that I also learned on UpToDate.com is that they're using thrombolysis, and it's associated with uh, vascular thrombolysis. And what they do is they do it within 24 hours uh, of administration, IVTPA, that's a tissue plasminogen activator, with or intraatrial heparin. Now, I, I now I, I haven't seen this done before, uh, but I again, I just read it on up to date. I think it's something that's completely awesome. Again, we're not going to be doing that in the field, but it's something, wow, why are they doing that? Why are they trying to, you know, uh, put in these chemicals into their body to prevent injury? Now, they actually did a study on it, and it was shown positive outcomes, and they were able to keep more digits when given this treatment. Now, now, again, your hospital might not do it, but it would be fun to talk to a doctor. Hey, doc, you know, have you guys ever thought about giving TPA or intraatrial heparin for these issues? Now, again, they, they do uh, wound care after all this. They do bulky dressings, uh, a little bit of elevation, again, hydrotherapy and splinting. They do not recommend uh, IV heparin. And there's a, a funny thing about blisters people have, uh, they're, they're both sides of the fence on blisters. One more person will say, hey, let's pop it. It has, uh, you know, uh, inflammatory processes in there that will slow the healing process. Other people say, you know, it's a biological bandage. You don't want to pop it. I don't know what to do. All I know is that pre-hospital, you don't need to fucking do it. The reason for that is going to open up uh, pockets that might be preceded for infection. We're in a terrible, you know, disease-infested world, and we try to be as clean as we can, but we are not sterile. And that's what they need is a sterile environment, and you do not need to make that decision. Do not pop blisters. That is for them to do at the hospital. Just look at them, say, ooh, that looks neat, maybe squish it around a little, but nothing other than that. 
And again, a lot of these will actually pop by themselves from traumatic movement when they're trying to, you know, uh, get out of whatever environment they're in. They might pop themselves. That's what happened to Freddy on the mountain. Now, we mentioned uh, splinting, and, and I think the reason they do splinting is because they don't want anything to rub the injury or move the injury too extremely, and that, that's one of the reasons they do splinting. I haven't seen splinting in the pre-hospital environment for a cold, isolated injury, but what they recommend is put it in a position of function or position of comfort, and again, do not rub the injury when you want to keep it isolated as possible. So now you know the treatment on what is going to happen to this patient. Let's talk about it one more time. You know, uh, we'll take Freddie again, for example. Uh, he is caught up on the mountain. He's in a blizzard. He's inches from death. He, he extricates himself, but he has injuries. He has frostbite. So what's going to happen? Well, he's going to call 911. 911 is going to come down to him and say, Oh my God, that is second degree frostbite on your hand. And that is third degree frostbite on your toe. And oh my gosh, we need to treat you immediately. So what are they going to do? They're going to get him into the warm environment. They're going to remove all of his wet clothing. They're going to do some don'ts. They're going to remember these don'ts. They're going to say, don't walk on frostbitten feet. They're going to not rewarm him if there is any chance of freezing. They're not going to rub the injury, and they are not going to heat with a fire or a stove. And then, simultaneously, while they're doing all this, they're, they're just an amazing crew. They talk with each other, and it happens within minutes. They get an IV. Now, if the IV wasn't warmed, they start heating it with hot packs on the bag and the tubing, and they just wrap it around them and tape it to it. However you could get it to stay. You're, you're creative. You could do it. And they crank up the heater in the back of the ambulance to a crazy degree where you're pouring sweat, but the, the patient is finally beginning to feel warm. And then you're going to administer narcotics because I'm sure he's in a plethora of pain, which he was. And then... You're going to rewarm. And you're going to pick the way you want to rewarm, whether it be the special way we talk about in about a, a minute or two, or if you want to use heat packs that are wrapped uh, with blankets and completely bundle them up uh, and his frostbitten hand, put it under his uh, axillary, and then you're going to drive to the hospital. And you're going to go over the radio and state, listen, I have a 24-year-old male whose chief complaint is going to be a frostbite, second degree to his hand and isolated to that hand, nothing reaching over the forearm. And he also has a third-degree frostbite to his big toe with swelling in both his left hand and his big toe. And you're going to state your treatment. The patient is vitally stable. List a bunch of vitals. You're going to uh, state whatever narcotic. I've given him 50 mcg of fentanyl, fentanyl IV. His pain has been reduced from a 5 to a 10. He is currently on ETCO2 nasal cannula being monitored for respirations. Our ETAs will be 5 to 10. He is being rewarmed as we speak. We'll see in about 5. And then when he arrives at the hospital, they're going to take him into his care. They're going to say, oh my gosh, Squad 81, you did such an amazing job. Thank you so much. They're going to take the patient. They don't have to remove any more clothes because you've already removed him, packed him with blankets. They're going to get a, a nice whirlpool for his hand and his, and his foot. They're going to set it to 37 or 39 degrees. 
and they're going to slowly start to rewarm. And then the doctor might come in and talk about thrombolysis and talk about the uh, the ins and out of it and if they want to do it, if he might lose digits or however extreme it might be. But they always but they always go over the contraindications and indications and the risks that might happen with that. And then they're going to perform the regular wound care after it's been completely taken care of. They're going to give it bulky dressings, might give it some elevation and some splinting. You already got an IV. You already gave him narcotics, so they, they don't even have to do that anymore. Yeah, they might take care of his blisters, but that is for the doctor to decide, and that is how this patient is going to be treated. And then, after all that, you're going to go back and you're going to check up on your patient, because th- this whole idea of not going back and checking up on your patient is, is, is pardon my French, but I've been cursing this entire time, and I, and I don't care because I'm about four coffees in. It, it, it's fucking crazy. Go check up on your goddamn patients, okay? That's the only way you're going to know if you've uh, adequately treated the patient, if anything could be better. You can even go ask the patient himself, hey, how did you like my treatment? Was there anything else that you would have wanted? Ask the nurse that you turned over to, hey, did I give you a good report? Were you able to understand everything that I did? Go talk to the to the doctor. Hey, doc, if you were in my shoes the next time, what would you have done? And well, he might have done some crazy stuff on any call that, that it's not in your protocol, but it's always good to know and just build that rapport with medicine. Go all the way. I, I can't tell you the amount of times that I have been, uh, you know, scolded for going and checking up on my patient because uh, it would have been a HIPAA violation. But that, that, that patient was my patient at a time. And if I go talk directly to the patient, then it's not a HIPAA violation. Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. I took care of you on the ambulance. How are you doing today? Do you mind if I go and talk to your nurse, go and talk to your doctor about uh, the treatment that you're receiving? Now, again, I don't know if this is uh, legal or if this is uh, looked down upon by other ambulance companies, but I could give a fuck, okay? It's important to know how you treated your patient. Now, after that whole rant, you're going to want to know what that whole experiment was. What was I holding back on the way that I am going to learn how to treat and reheat patients? Well, it goes a little something like this. Well, what I want you to do is to uh, imagine or go get two basins. So you have two basins in front of you. They stack on top of each other. Yeah, they fit into each other. Everybody has them. People have barfed into them for uh, decades now. But you have two basins. And then I want you to take some hot packs. Now you put the hot packs in one basin. So you have a basin right there. You put hot packs in it. Then you're going to take a couple bags of normal saline and you're going to cut them open with your trauma shears. You're going to dump them in there after you've activated the hot packs. And then you are going to heat the water. And what do you have right there? Well, you have not a whirlpool. It's going to be a stagnant pool but a pool of water. Now, don't forget to wrap those hot packs in in uh, either gauze or towels because you don't want your patient dipping their hand all the way in there. But that's a, that's a pool. It's a pool of water that's so well controlled. Now, the other way that I'm going to test or explain how this works is you take, you dump all that shit out. You dump it out. Now you have those two basins again, right? Now, you put the hot packs in one basin, then you put the other basin on top of the basin with the hot packs in it, then put the water in that basin. So it's essentially, you're just making a, a stove top, or you're just making a hot plate with basins and hot packs. 
And I actually got this idea from uh, Jeffrey Weinstein, who taught me a long time ago when you when you're out in the field and you give birth. Uh, or not you giving birth, but you you take a patient from a woman's vagina that just gave birth, and she doesn't want to hold the baby, or she doesn't want to breastfeed the baby, or there, you know, whatever might happen. If you need to heat that baby, one thing you can do, and one thing he taught me was to do exactly that, but to wrap the baby and wrap the entire thing in blankets and make sure it's completely cuddled, and it's just this beautiful thing. I, I will definitely put up pictures, but I advise all of you to follow your protocols now. I just mentioned all of these things, but what I want you to do is to not do these yet. Do not even mention them. Do not even fabricate the idea of doing these on a patient, because here's why. We don't know how hot those hot packs are going to heat the water, whether it be one, two, or three hot packs, whether it be directly in the normal saline or under the normal saline under under a basin. That's what I'm going to do. What I am going to do is conduct an experiment. And yes, I have all the tools and I'm actually being uh, given hot packs by a great uh, sponsor, you could say, who's going to conduct who's going to sponsor my research and they're going to give me hot packs. And it's going to be rapid deployment products. And I just asked for some hot packs because I'm conducting this experiment and they said, "Sure, I'll send them right to you." And so that's what what I have. I have a lab set up and I, I'm going to conduct this experiment on baseline temperature and then intervals of one minute, the enthalpy change and entropy change within that until we get to the top temperature for each set, either the one basin or the two basin method. And then the variance within that, the one hot pack, two hot pack, or three hot pack method to see how hot we can get it. If we could get it to that target range of 37 to 30, 39 degrees Celsius, like they do in the hospital, and then we can go from there. But do not do this on your patients right now. It is not a done procedure. It has not been tested ever. This is a, this is an awesome idea that, that I wanted to share to you. If you guys have any comments or questions, you guys want to know how it works, the math that goes into it, or you guys might have ideas of your own on how to heat patients uh, without using uh, hot packs directly onto their body. That might be the better way that they do it in hospital. So that is the experiment. You guys will be hearing more about it uh, later, maybe in a mental bump coming up. But I just ordered all the equipment for my little lab that I'm going to set up. It should be here within the week, and I'll have it done maybe within two or three weeks. And I can't wait to share with you all the information that I get. So just a quick recap on what we have covered today. We've covered some physics. We've covered the change in heat and energy through conduction, convection, and radiation. We've also covered a little bit of chemistry with enthalpy and entropy. We've also covered some patho about how it works on an intracellular level where we get that swelling and those those crystalline structures forming within your extremities on these frostbite and hypothermic injuries. And then we have covered the degrees of frostbite. We've, deco- we've discovered the, the differences in between first, second, and third, and fourth degree frostbite and also frost nip. And then we just, just discussed treatment, pre-hospital and in-hospital treatment. And again, these were brought from uh, uptodate.com and also the Wilderness website for EMS. Now, before we continue, I want you guys to remember, 
I am not, and anybody that does podcasts are not the end-all be-all. We are all humans, just like you. Listening with bated breath on new technology, new medicine, new ways of thinking, new concepts. But it's always important that we do our own research. That you listening to this right now goes out and, and reads something about a hypothermia and about cold injuries and, and researches what they just heard. Because just because you heard it on a podcast doesn't make it true. I might say right now that I have three legs. Well, that's not a good example. I might say right now that I live in a mansion in New York, but it's just not true. You can do some research and find out where I live. It's on, it's on the website. I live in New Mexico. That, that is a falsehood. And it's important that you guys go and check out the information that I give to you. Just don't take me for granted. Go out there and expand your minds on all this physics, chemistry, and patho of what we just talked about today. And be sure and talk with your EMS providers. Be sure and talk. Nurses, talk to your EMS crews. Uh, EMS crews, talk to your nurses. Talk with the firefighters. Talk to your own companies. Talk to doctors about how we should be treating pre-hospital patients about how we should be treating pre-hospital patients with frostbite and everything that we covered in this podcast. And do your best. Try your hardest to make it a protocol because then you'll be covered. And yeah, it's a long, arduous process, but in the end, it benefits everyone because you can't just be the the lone cowboy out there going big dick swinging or a, a big vagina swinging. It doesn't matter what sex you are. There are amazing providers in, in every sex, whether it be female, male, or in between. You can't go out there cowboying it up and just doing it, making it your own rodeo. Make everyone on the same page. Bring everyone up to the best standard that you can. So that's what I'm going to leave you guys with. I'm going to leave you with some social media. Be sure and check us out on Twitter at emtransport81. Be sure and go to our website. That's going to be emtransportradio.squarespace.com. Always, you can always hit me up on the email. That's going to be emtransportradio at yahoo.com. Check out our Instagrams, and that's going to be at Papa Bear Medic. That's going to be my personal my personal one. Check out our Google Pluses, and you can see that on Nate Gonzalez, uh, the uh, original spelling, and Charlie Alvarenga. That's going to be mine. That's C H A R L I E, last name A L V A R E N G A. And I'd also got, like to give a little shout out, uh, something that actually helped me that I wanted to uh, let you guys know that I watched and I was I was blown away by the quality of this video. And I'm like, oh, I just want to give these guys money. They're just amazing. It was Crash Course, and it's a YouTube subscription channel. And you go on there and you, they just have videos upon videos that are well put together, well thought out well animated and go over incredibly important topics like physics, chemistry, microbiology, and everything you could ever want to know. And I looked at these because I wanted to get a little bit of a refresher before I dig deep into what I'm diving into. So I give them a good shout out. Go check them out if you would like to. Again, Crash Course uh, YouTube channel. And that's all she wrote. That's all I have for you guys today. Uh, please, again, leave me your comments. It's going to be one of the first medical podcasts that I do by myself. Uh, but don't worry, we will have guests in the future that will be joining me over various amounts of uh, topics. And I will get this experiment on the ball and out to you. But to that, 
I say cheers. I am currently holding up my coffee in Kahlua. And I'm going to leave you with a quote that I commonly say. Remember that every patient is family. And I'll see you on the next one.